0: We are completing Jesus' sermon preached in a synagogue as he traveled through Capernaum, reading verses 41 through 59 this morning. John 6, 41 through 59. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? this is the word of the lord Thanks be to God. let's pray father as we come to your word this morning we confess that it is in your light that we see light you are the fountain of life and it is only in jesus christ that we know you and so we come in dependence and in humility this morning asking that you would lead us into all truth Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. It was June of 2001 when Melissa and I moved from Clinton, South Carolina to Orlando, Florida to attend Reform Theological Seminary there. People have asked me along the way, Why did you choose RTS? And I explain, Well, I didn't choose it, it was chosen for me. One of the elders in the church in Clinton, South Carolina was a college friend's father and he was on the board at RTS and he came to me and informed me where I'd be attending. And you didn't disagree with Collie Lane, you just said, yes, sir. So I packed up my things and moved to Orlando, Florida. After several years of working in college ministry at Presbyterian College, I was eager to further my biblical and theological knowledge. At that point, I was beginning to understand what I didn't know and just how disqualified for all the stuff I had set out to do was. And so I was, you could say, even eager and excited to begin at seminary. I wanted to be able to do my work responsibly and didn't feel like I could. Our incoming class was one of the largest on record at RTS. There were over 90 students in our summer Greek. And if you're not familiar with seminary, which you would have no real reason to be, summer Greek serves two purposes. The first is that it's a four-week course through the summer in which you're to familiarize yourself with New Testament grammar, how the Greek uh, Koine Greek language works. And so it's very informative. The second and probably main purpose is that it is there to weed out the faint in heart. It's a fairly intense process as you work through it. Accordingly, students began dropping. There wasn't a massive number, but some did begin to drop. Then we launched into our first semester, the fall. Many of you would remember that fall. It was the fall of September 11th. There was many... um, things in a culture and society that were off and people were scared, they were full of fear. And it was in that context that we launched into a full semester where we didn't just have one class, but now there were six to seven courses that you were taking. We were being pressed with intellectual demands and reading loads that were difficult to sustain. It was hard to faithfully complete all your assignments. And there was a lot of grumbling (laughs) complaining about professors, those we liked and those we didn't like. But but then we also had some other classes. They were not really the ones we had signed up for. They were classes like intro to counseling. And also there were preaching classes that we were all excited about on the front end. But you got into the counseling courses and you found that people started to critique you on your interpersonal skills. And it was profoundly uncomfortable. And guys began to say things like, I didn't sign up for this, this is not why I'm in seminary. (laughs) And so then they went in their arrogance to the preaching lab and then they were critiqued on their sermon and suddenly they found that their communication skills weren't all that they thought them to be either. And so with the intellectual demands, the interpersonal demands, And now the critique had spread to everything we thought we were good at. We began dropping like flies. (laughs) The number descended from 90. I'm not sure where it ever quite landed. But you may have asked, what exactly was happening? And it's just that seminary was not what people expected it to be. It was not what they expected at all. They had dreams of theological conversations, perhaps grandiose dreams about their participation in the reform of the church and what that was going to look like. And suddenly they were swamped in books and conversations about how they were a difficult person to be around. (laughs) I remember talking with my professor Richard Pratt about at this juncture where I was really struggling in my first semester. And what he said to me was, Never forgotten. He said, if you can't handle this pressure, then don't think that you'll ever be able to handle the pressure of being a pastor. Get used to it. The message was, suck it up. It gets worse. (laughs) Some dropped out. Some lost their faith, unfortunately. Others changed degree programs. But the reason was simple. It was not what they expected. And this dynamic is not isolated to seminary. In fact, actually, when you look at your own life and when it comes to following Jesus, we experience those very same dynamics. You don't have to go to a theological education to find it. But as we follow Jesus, we oftentimes don't find what we expect. We come in with various expectations that we import and smuggle in, and then we find that there's something different And this is what happened to the disciples. They were committed to Jesus and then there were large crowds that glommed on to Jesus and they had expectations. And we saw last week that many of those expectations were superficial impressions. But then by the end of it, in verse 60, Jesus' own disciples were saying, these are hard sayings. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? They're they're asking. Their expectations were completely different than what Jesus was now doing. And this is why the crowds are grumbling. They were grumbling and disputing because Jesus had moved the cheese. He was not what they thought he was. He was saying something different. And so this morning, in the moments that we have ahead of the Lord's table, we're going to look at the second half of this sermon and ask and answer the question, what exactly is it that we find so hard about Jesus? What is often different than what we expected? Three things for us here this morning. And the first is in verses 41 and 42. We see that Jesus does explicitly contradict our expectations the people began grumbling we find in verse 41 and then they ask how does he say i have come down from heaven you see they knew jesus's father and mother he was from nazareth he had a street address and so now they're asking the question how does this lunatic say he came down from heaven when we know just where he is from It's a fairly simple question. Now, what's interesting is they're asking that question after they have tried to make him king. If you remember verse 15 in chapter six, Jesus had to steal away and get away from the crowds because he knew they were about to force him to become king. He had just filled their bellies with bread and confirmed that he was the prophet of God. The people thought he was coming to deliver and to rescue them. But suddenly, Jesus begins to say, as that deliverer and rescuer, that he is the bread that's come down from heaven. This didn't match up with what they expected at all. They wanted a Messiah of a certain sort, and they wanted a God of a certain sort, and Jesus was somehow confusing all of this, and he was redefining it. And this contradiction continues for us today because the truth is, is that we all smuggle our notions of who God is and how he is to behave. We smuggle that into this conversation. When it comes to knowing God, we bring our presuppositions, we bring our expectations. And those expectations and presuppositions are inevitably corrupted by our own sinful nature. We know something of God's greatness and power, Paul tells us in Romans 1. We are impressed by God, but he also says that we grope around in the darkness, not really knowing who he is. That's the depth of our corruption. Our knowledge of God is severely limited. But where we struggle is we struggle to accept that, that our natural knowledge of God is so limited due to our own sinful capacities. We claim to boast more about him than our sinful condition will allow. Leslie Newbegin, who was bishop in the Church of South India, said this. He said, therefore, one has to begin to learn the meaning of the word God By coming to Jesus and learning from him of the one he calls my father. And this is precisely what Jesus is pressing the crowds about. That all their expectations about God, all the things they're smuggling into the conversation had to be confronted. It was appropriate for him to say that he is the bread come down from heaven. And what they were not understanding is they had the wrong definitions of who God is. As we saw all the way back in the prologue in verse 18, Jesus makes God known that he is the manifestation, the revelation, the incarnation of God. And the father is known as Jesus is looked upon and believed in. And that it is our notions of God that Jesus puts in the dock that he brings to trial, that he would condemn. Verse 46, Jesus says this explicitly. He says, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus is pressing that he knows the Father. He makes the Father known. The Father is known in him. He reveals God to us contradicting so much of our supposed knowledge. And the question Jesus is asking, that is so offensive, is are you willing to learn God from me? Are you willing to submit your knowledge to me? Are you willing to forsake all that natural knowledge that you think you have of who God is to be and how he is to perform? And are you willing to allow me to reveal him to you? Will you surrender your expectations, your presuppositions, and also your independence, your autonomy? Will you give yourself wholly to me? This is why the crowds grumbled. That's a hard saying. That Jesus is our access to the knowledge of God in our sinful and falling condition. Now the second thing that's happening here in these hard sayings, we find in verses 43 through 47, where Jesus offends our pride You see that right after he defends that he's the bread come down from heaven, he enters into a small sermonette. And this is what he says. He says, do not grumble among yourselves. And then verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now this accords with things that we heard Jesus say last week in the part of the sermon just ahead of this. Where Jesus is explaining that salvation is a double gift that is objectively accomplished by God in sending Jesus from heaven to the earth where he dies and resurrects and does everything for those who would believe in him and look to him that they might inherit eternal life. That's the objective accomplishment. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says that there's a double gift. Not only does God send Jesus into the world to objectively accomplish salvation, God also sends us to Jesus. That he grants us, he draws us, he pulls us to faith and to belief and to trust. And when Jesus explains this, he's explaining that we in our responsibility to believe and to trust are irresponsible, that we're hardened. Please note what he says. In verse 45, he says, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. And then he notes, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And this is a stumbling point for many people when it comes to theological doctrine. How can this be fair? And a lot of people when they look at it, they say, well, what Jesus is saying is those who are in are in, and those who are out are out. This seems like a harsh form of determinism. And that doesn't accord with doctrines that we call predestination, because that's not what Jesus is teaching at all. But rather what he's saying is that everyone will be taught by God that there is a universal revelation that every creature under, in God's good world receives, but not everyone hears. In fact, none of us would hear unless the Father mysteriously drew some of us to hear. That's the explanation that Jesus gives as to how this works. That all are responsible to hear him. All have the capacity to hear him. What has been incapacitated is our desire to hear him which is our own moral fault that we bring to the equation that we love the darkness rather than the light, but the light shines. It's sufficient for all. And so Jesus assaults us in all of our pride in all of our beliefs about our capacity and ability that we can achieve, that we can do. Jesus comes after us and says, no, you will not believe unless the Father draws you. Augustine, who was the bishop of Hippo, and in his theology, he is what we would call the author of what later came to be known as Calvinism. That was really just all Augustine, guys. (laughs) And Augustine was asked the question, well, how do you explain while you're preaching someone who responds in faith and someone who doesn't? And this is what he said. He said, let the one who stands in faith give praise to God and let the one who remains seated in his unbelief blame himself. Explaining that this is the biblical balance, that faith is God's gracious gift as he draws us to Jesus. And unbelief is human, humanity's awesome responsibility. We are responsible to listen to Jesus and hear him. But we are hard of hearing. We're deaf. We press back the light. We don't desire to see it. And for those who have been drawn, there is no room for smugness, there's no room for sloth, there's no room for superiority. But rather, those get replaced by humility, obedience, and gratitude. And when we suffer the insult of Jesus, when he tells us that we're deaf, when he tells us that we're hard of hearing, but when we are drawn, this is what life yields. It yields this humility, this obedience, and this gratitude. The third piece to this, though, as to what makes Jesus so hard, is found in verses 46 through 51. And here he defines our dependence You notice what Jesus says in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, if you consider it, food is very much at the center of human life. We oftentimes build our days around two to three meals and perhaps a few more for some of us. Multiple times a day we eat. We love food. It's a chance to connect, but also there's a more basic level to it. Our bodies cannot thrive without it. If we don't eat, we become emaciated and we die. And we have to export ourselves from the modern world where food is in abundance and we have takeout options, we have restaurants, and we have grocery stores. But in Jesus's context, scarcity of food was a real thing. And so when you talked about the necessity of eating, everybody got it. Because almost everyone, and definitely a peasant population whom Jesus was primarily ministering to here, who had followed him out into the wilderness, they would have understood that if you don't eat and you don't drink, which could really happen, you will die. And Jesus is saying that we must eat his flesh, we must drink his blood, we must have this bread, or we will not make it into eternal life. If we are to live, we have to eat this life-giving bread. It is what sustains, it is what nourishes us. And there's a long conversation in the world of theology that's been going on since the earliest centuries of the church as to what these verses exactly mean. And I'll give you my best shot at it, because I believe there's two levels that Jesus is speaking on. And on the first level, we have to understand that to eat is to believe in Jesus Note the last part of verse 51, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus here is speaking about his flesh that is given in his death that was then, that flesh was then raised up. This is what he's speaking of, and so to eat is to believe. It is to trust Jesus. It is to look to him to cancel out our judgment, that our sins are destroyed in him, that our condemnation has been condemned and that because of his death in our place, we can stand right with God. This is the eating that Jesus on the first level is speaking of. But there's also a second level where to eat is to eat. It is to come to a meal and you'll note as we read the Gospel of John that John doesn't include the institution of the Lord's Supper. He has a rather long dialogue between Jesus and the disciples from chapter 13 to 17. And many people have puzzled, why doesn't John include that? Well, and it's because John includes chapter 6, and he includes Jesus' Sermon where Jesus has given thanks over the bread in a very similar way, the same language that we find in the, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He gives thanks over the bread and it multiplies. And he's telling the same story. That when we are told to eat the flesh of Jesus and to drink his blood, we are being drawn into this ritual action that we call the Lord's Supper. This is John's way of doing it. And many people, when it comes to talking about communion, in the same way the conversation about predestination can become so confusing, people think, no, this just complicates things. But I would urge you to see that Jesus is simplifying things, actually. That Jesus is speaking of his flesh that has been given to the world and now he gives a very tangible sign in which we're to come and feed on that flesh and drink that blood in a particular manner in order to know that we have a real interest in him, that he would sustain us and nurture us in this life. And the church has commonly spoken of the sacrament of baptism as the rite of initiation, And the sacrament of the Lord's table as the rite of continuation is the means by which we come to Jesus, that we come to him in faith, trusting, and that through these channels of bread and wine that you have before you today, God has appointed these as the means by which you would feast on him. Now this leads to an explosion of questions that we certainly can't all answer today, but we'll chart out the main part of it because people will ask well what am I eating and drinking then how do we eat the flesh how do we drink the blood there are two essential affirmations that we make as we approach this meal the first is that Jesus's body is in but one place and that is at the right hand of God And what this presses back against, this presses back against crass and carnal notions of the Lord's Supper in which the bread and the wine on the table by a prayer, hocus pocus, literally in Latin, (laughs) becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. Since Jesus' body is a real physical human body and he stands at the right hand of God, His body is not on this table. It's the insistence of the reformers. And so there's an affirmation that Jesus' body is in but one place. But the second thing, there's another affirmation that we have to make. It's found in 1 Corinthians 10. And Paul there, as he pleads with the Corinthians, he says that our participation in communion, in the cup and in the bread that are given to us, that these are a real participation in the body and blood of Christ. He uses the word that we often translate fellowship, that we're truly fellowshipping in the body and blood of Christ. And so John Calvin and all the reformers that our tradition, Presbyterian tradition has followed, has sought to affirm these two essential elements, to say, yes, Jesus's body is in but one place, and yes, As we come to Jesus, there is a real participation in his body and in his blood. That this is more than simply coming and doing an exercise of memory. Certainly there are things to remember, but there is a spiritual participation in Jesus as we come to him in faith. If you look in verse 63, you see what Jesus explains. He says, it is the spirit who gives life? And friends, as you come to the table this morning, this is what we believe. It is by the Spirit of God that we feast on the body and blood of Jesus. We come to him in faith, looking to him to meet all of our needs, trusting that he's the one sufficient to do so. And it is the Spirit who gives us life through these very simple, tangible means that God gives to us. John Calvin wrote hundreds of pages about the Lord's Supper and then he gets to one paragraph and he concludes this. I'd rather enjoy it than understand it. And that's the sum of it. That we come in faith. We come affirming the things that scripture teaches and we affirm mystery. That God is doing something in and among us that we're feeding on the life and death of his son, that we're communing with him, we're abiding in him, and he is abiding in us as we come to this meal. And so this morning, come in faith and allow him to strengthen you. Allow him to fortify you. Allow him to assuage all your worries and concerns, all the things that you don't even fully understand all the uncertainties that lie out in front of you. Don't grumble, but rather be coming to him, continuously so, because all of this he does on your behalf. He gave his body, his flesh was broken, that you could come and feast on him, and that we would join those crowds, and that we would say, "'Sir, give us this bread always.'" It is you who have the words of eternal life. And so come to him. Let's pray.